0: Working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
1: And financially supported by listeners like you.
2: Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. In this edition of Ego Report, environmental correspondent Zero Rose delves into Bloomington's designation as a gold-level bicycle-friendly
0: community by the League of American Bicyclists. And now for your environmental reports. The following article is about the future of the Hoosier National Forest. Log and burn or leave alone? Indiana residents fight the U.S. Forest Service over the future of Hoosier National Forest. The mighty valuable oak is at the center of conflict between federal officials and logging opponents over how to manage mature forests in an era of climate change. The following story comes from Inside Climate News and presents arguments on both sides of the issue. In two of the largest projects the U.S. Forest Service has ever undertaken in the historic Hoosier National Forest, the agency plans to log more than 9,000 acres – Conduct prescribed burns on another 28,000 and build more than 27 miles of roads. The Houston South and Buffalo Springs proposals have engendered fierce local opposition, not only from horse riders and hikers, but chambers of commerce and elected officials, Republicans and Democrats alike. The contest taking shape in southern Indiana is part of a larger battle now being waged over the future of the national forest, the nation's greatest of forest carbon in a changing climate. President Biden has sought to protect mature and old growth forests, but clearly his Forest Service is resisting the concept of preserving old forests as a strategic reserve of carbon, which some climate scientists have advocated. Last month, the Biden administration announced a plan for new regulations to enhance climate resilience, resilience in those forests. It was a follow up to a first of its kind inventory ordered by Biden that showed mature and old growth forests make up 60 percent or 112 million acres of the forest managed by the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management. But the Forest Service has more than 20 projects underway, like The Hoosier plans that include logging or burning in 370,000 acres of those mature and old growth forests, according to Climate Forest Campaign, a coalition of environmental groups. The Forest Service, which is taking public comments through June 20th on what its new climate rules should look like, argues Restoration and vegetation management activities like the Buffalo Springs and Houston South projects proposed in Indiana may be better in the long run from a climate change perspective. The Forest Service says that with predicted changes in climate, especially hotter, drier summers in the Midwest, Hoosier National Forest is more likely to experience wildfire and therefore they must plan appropriately to have a fire resilient forest. More than half of the stands in the Hoosier are 80 years old or older, and there has been a sharp decline in establishment of new ones, the Forest Service said in its assessment of the carbon impact of the Buffalo Springs portion of its Hoosier proposal. If the forest continues on this aging trajectory, more stands will reach a slower growth stage in coming years, potentially causing the rate of carbon accumulation to decline, the the assessment said. The plan is to make way for new oak habitat by clear-cutting 1,100 acres and otherwise culling mature trees the Forest Service says are less resilient and beneficial to the ecosystem, including maple, beech, and pine. And now continuing with
2: the article on the Hoosier National Forest. But Richard Birdsey, who spent 40 years with the Forest Service before his retirement as a distinguished science scientist in 2016, says in effect that the agency's climate science in this instance is wrong. Such a fall-off in carbon absorption can take hundreds of years to unfold as trees die and decay. Middle-aged forests of the eastern United States would continue to absorb and store carbon over the next two crucial decades for staving off the climate crisis if they are allowed to stand, he said. Recent scientific papers, Birdsey has co-authored, show how protection of large-diameter older trees can help further biodiversity and other forest resilience goals, and how more robust forest conservation policy could help mitigate climate change. If you harvest an older forest, it creates what's called a carbon debt, Birdsey said. You've removed a lot of stored carbon, and in order to replenish that, we're looking at decades, if not centuries. Having worked in the eastern U.S. for the Forest Service, Birdsey is familiar with oak restoration like the agency proposes in the Hoosier. He said the agency may have reason to pursue such projects, but should not try to justify them on the basis of climate protection. There may be other reasons, let's say for wildlife, for removing some of the trees and allowing some different species to grow, Birdsey said. But that has nothing to do with climate. And in in a case like that, you just have to accept that it is not going to be good for the climate. Both Native Americans and early white settlers burned the forest repeatedly, usually to clear the land for agriculture. The territory that became Indiana, which was 90% forest-covered prior to the start of the 19th century, had only 4% forest cover left by 1900, according to a 2018 report by the Purdue-led Indiana Climate Change Impacts assess- Assessment. Thick, barked oaks survived the fires and thrived in the open spaces in even on north-facing slopes with less direct sunlight. Indiana's forests now cover about 20% of the state, but most of that woodland remains in private hands. The Forest Service began buying abandoned land here and in other eastern states during the Great Depression. The Hoosier is now filled with stands of non-native pines planted 50 to 90 years ago through federally funded efforts like the New Deal-era Civilian Conservation Corps to stop rampant erosion on bare, abandoned farmland. But the Forest Service says the pine plantations are less suitable habitat for wildlife and biodiversity than oak and should be removed. Also targeted are shade-tolerant species like American beech and sugar maple that have been regenerating instead of oaks and hickories. Prescribed fire, in most cases preceded by logging mature trees, reduces forest density and removes the competition. The projects will improve the sustainability of the oak history ecosystem and move the landscape toward historic conditions, the Forest Service said in its statement of need for the Buffalo Springs project. The Forest Service said it is looking to mimic Native American settlements in Indiana that date back to 12,000 B.C. Evidence suggests extensive use of fire by Native peoples for centuries, and people have been on this landscape since nearly the last ice age. Therefore, our Native plant and animal life evolved with fire and are adapted or tolerant of it at low intensities, which is what our prescribed fires are, the Forest Service said. Now, with impacts of climate change already evident, critics say the Forest Service is seeking to recreate an era that was anything but a healthy one for Indiana's forests. They're trying to restore the forest back to the most degraded baseline that ever existed, said Jeff Stant, executive director of the Indiana Forest Alliance. They always use the word historic so that the public will think they're trying to go back to the way nature really was. But much of the dominance of oak history forests in southern Indiana is an artifact of heavy rural settlement in the 1800s.
0: The fires in Nova Scotia and Quebec were a surprise. What happened? Nova Scotia's capital, Halifax, received just three inches of rain between March and May, roughly a third of the average, according to the Weather Network meteorologist Michael Carter. A scorching late May heat wave pushed temperatures in Halifax to 33 degrees Celsius, or 91.4 Fahrenheit, which is a 10 degrees Celsius above normal for this time of year. The wildfires are believed to have been caused either by lightning, as in the case of Quebec, or accidentally by human activity. Helen Whitman, a research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service said there is also speculation that trees fell during Hurricane Fiona, which hit Atlantic Canada in September of 2022, or killed by an infestation of forest pests, maybe providing more fuel than, us- than usual for wildfires. But that theory requires further investigation. There is every reason to expect that fires in these provinces will become more frequent. The number of monarch butterflies hibernating
2: in Mexican forests decreased last winter to about 5.5 acres. This was about 20% lower than the winter of 2021-2022, but not greatly different than populations seen over the past decade. Frost and extreme temperatures in the United States may have played a role in the butterfly's decline during the most recent winter season, said Humberto Pina, director of Mexico's Nature Reserves. Illegal logging has been a major threat to the pine and fir forest where the butterflies gather in clumps to keep warm. But experts said that this year, more than half the tree loss was due to removal of dead or sick trees affected by fires, storms, or pests. A lack of rain had plunged trees into hydric stress, making them more vulnerable to diseases, pests, and fires. The western population overwintering in California had dropped from 10 million butterflies in the 1980s to just 1,914 monarch butterflies in 2021. Since then, California has seen a rebound with 330,000
0: monarch butterflies recorded in 2023. And now we turn to Zero Rose as he asks Hank Duncan, Bloomington's bicycle and pedestrian coordinator, about the aspects of becoming a bicycle-friendly community, the city's metrics and sources of data, room for improvement, and the special recognition of the seven-lane bike lane by People for Bikes.
1: We have with us today Hank Duncan. He is the city's bicycle and pedestrian coordinator and... uh, We're going to talk about the uh, designation as a bicycle-friendly community. Um, You want to let our listeners know kind of what that is, and uh, we've been designated a few different years here at different levels, and I guess we're what, we're recently at the gold
3: level? Yes. So... The Bicycle-Friendly the bicycle Communities is an award given out by the League of American Bicyclists um, simply to encourage cities, counties, other municipalities to push forward uh, bicycle-friendly policies. They have a few different criteria that goes into each application. Uh one aspect is the engineering, you know, what infrastructure do we have? One aspect is the equity. How do we promote equitable facilities and equitable cycling and transportation around Bloomington? Um, encouragement, what incentives do we offer residents to bike around? Um education, how do we educate folks on one, the rules of the road, but two, educating drivers on how to safely drive and coexist with cyclists. So those are just a few of the categories that go into each application. Um Bloomington was recently named a gold level bicycle friendly community and we are one of 36 communities in the nation to be named a gold level community and then there are also five other communities that were named platinum which is a level above gold. So There are hundreds of communities that are either a bronze level or a silver level, silver level, or even honorable mention. But Bloomington is at the upper end of those communities who have applied for this award.
1: And I think there was some sort of award for the, uh, what is it, the seven line?
3: Yes, that was a separate award, uh, People for Bikes, which is a, another nonprofit organization that supports cycling as a mode of transportation around the the U.S. They named the Seven Line one of the 10 best bike lanes uh, created in 2022. So the Seven Line was finally opened in late 2021, and uh, People for Bikes gave it some great national attention for its connection between the Indiana University campus Bloomington's downtown and the protection that it gives to cyclists along the way.
1: And so um, what kind of improvements would be involved in uh, getting up to those higher uh, levels? I think, what is it, diamond
3: and platinum? Yeah, absolutely. So gold, again, it's great to be awarded with a gold award but that's not the end goal. There is platinum ahead of us, and then two steps ahead, which no city in the US has reached yet, is diamond level. Um, Essentially, it's improving on all of those criteria that I already mentioned, improving uh, the infrastructure we have in the city, more protected bike lanes, more multi-use paths, more low stress, comfortable networks for cyclists to bike around town. When we think of a cycling population, Um, we have one subset that is already out there cycling that are relatively confident and comfortable in their abilities. We have another subset on the whole other spectrum that probably might never get out on a bike or doesn't want to get out on a bike, and that's fine. But there is a huge middle ground there. It's about 60 to 70 percent of the population that is interested in biking, but concerned about it due to a number of reasons, specifically safety, So it's our job to get, especially that middle group who isn't out there now or wants to be out there more on a bike, out there in a low stress, comfortable, safe environment where not just the safety is high, but the perceived safety is high. So folks are able to get out, reduce carbon emissions, get some exercise, and be able to transport by bike.
1: And are there certain percentages of the population? Any any kind of goals like that within the program, or or one of the uh, assessment data points of of what gets you scores you more points or something like that?
3: Yeah. So, in terms of specific points and data, it's there's nothing really specific in there. It's a lot. It's very overarching. Um, but one big point that that as a city we need to improve on is the percentage of people who commute by bike daily. Um, I believe in Bloomington it's around four to five percent, but there are other cities that have that platinum award, say like uh, Boulder, Colorado or Davis, California or Madison, Wisconsin, where those numbers are upwards of 10, 12, or 15 plus percent. And again, it's on the city to promote this type of transportation, build an infrastructure for it, educate the public on why it's good for them and good for society to do it, and then see if those numbers can increase.
1: And is there any uh, particular entity that's to do with the uh, assessing that data, where you guys are kind of getting your stats?
3: So, most of the stats come from the census. So, uh, we use the 2020 census for most of our data, um, if not all of it. I'm trying to think of any other source and I can't really think of it right now. But um, from what I remember in the application, we use the 2020 census for percentage of people who bike and walk to work, um, population of Bloomington. And we also have uh, bike counters, bike and pedestrian counters around the city where we can capture the daily amount of bike ped traffic. Uh, The most busy counter is naturally on the B line over by the convention center, where daily we have about thirteen or 1,400 folks going across it. And in the summer times, we have upwards of 2,000 to 2,500 people going across it. So those are counters that really tell us where people are and when people are going there. Uh, Again, that's not the only counter we have, but that is by far the busiest one.
1: And is that a a sensor?
3: Yeah, so it is an induction loop um, in the asphalt there. So when people walk over or bike over, it can tell who's who, whether you're a pedestrian or a cyclist. And it just puts you in one of those two categories and puts you in the chart.
1: Hmm, Interesting. And so, uh, does this uh, designation or the numbers that it adds up to affect anything like the climate action plans of the city? Um, is it a category that's being tracked as far as improving the stats toward uh, climate change mitigation?
3: Yeah, uh, that that's no question. Um, So one goal in the city's Climate Action Plan and Comprehensive Plan is to increase the amount of Bloomington residents who bike to work and bike as their main form of transportation. Again, right now, it's only about four or five percent. And I think the goal by 2030 is to make it, I believe it was seven percent. So there is definitely some work to be done. Again, we are coming up and constructing this infrastructure to get people out there in a safer environment, but it's also on us to go out to schools, um, communities, to educate them on why biking is beneficial. Safe Safe Routes to School is a major organization in the U.S., and they're, they're, that is just one of many things that we could do and do better to encourage folks to bike around Bloomington
1: and do you see anything in the way or what would you consider the major impediments to the type of improvements i mean what what are what are the uh, kind what is the kind of next level to go to a, a few more major
3: arteries sure i mean so in terms of infrastructure i think bloomington is doing a in terms of all the different categories that i mentioned bloomington is doing a better job with infrastructure than the other categories, I think there is still there are still ways to go with safe infrastructure for cyclists around Bloomington. But I think there's a lot of there's a lot of potential for the encouragement, putting out incentives for people to bike, education, uh, educating drivers on how to drive safely, um, educating riders on where to ride, how to get a bike, how to maintain your bike. Uh, there there are some innate barriers to cycling. One being safety, I think the main one being safety, and that perceived safety needs to rise up a lot for that biking population to increase, but also cost, where some folks think that biking is an expensive mode of transportation, but when when you are truly replacing a car with a bike as your main form of transportation, your household transportation costs fall tenfold, plus some. Um, I think an average new car costs about $26,000 these days, and an average new e-bike costs about $2,500. Then you add in insurance, maintenance, um, any kind of repairs, and those costs keep widening and widening and widening. And it's clear that if you are not just wanting to be environmentally conscious, but if you want to save money and have more disposable income uh, for other facets of your life, cycling is an incredibly efficient way to get around.
1: Indeed, indeed. Well, I I think that'll uh, cover it for uh, this encounter today, and uh, appreciate you uh, filling us in on the details of that.
3: Yeah, of course, I appreciate you uh, inviting me on.
2: For Eco-Report, I'm
0: Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts.
2: Today, I'm going to talk to you about a swamp rabbit. Is it a killer rabbit? Nope, not a chance. The solitary swamp rabbit is anything but predatory. It is an interesting creature though. It's the largest cottontail found in North America, but it differs from its other white-tailed relatives. The biggest difference is the fact it is a semi-aquatic animal. Its home range is limited within 1.25 miles of water. Water is necessary for its survival. Watery habitats, which include wetlands, swamps, marshes, floodplains, and wet bottomlands, offer the rabbits plenty of grasses, sedges, and tree saplings they enjoy. It also provides ample protection from predators. Like all rabbits, swamp rabbits are swift creatures by running in a zigzag pattern to take off into the water. Once in the water, they hide in the thick vegetation or immerse themselves with only their nose sticking out. The swamp rabbit population extends from the Gulf of Mexico to southern Indiana. According to the Indiana Fish and Wildlife Services, the swamp rabbit is a state-endangered species due to habitat destruction and degradation. Wetland draining, increasing agricultural encroachment, and protection against flooding are all significant threats to the remaining swamp rabbit populations. With only 0.91% of Indiana covered by wetlands, the swamp rabbit has very few places to live. In 1979, the swamp rabbit enjoyed a brief stint of notoriety when one was involved in a too-close-for-comfort encounter with President Jimmy Carter. The Nature Conservancy and the Indiana Wetlands Reserve Program are just two organizations in Indiana that are hoping to protect the remaining wetlands for the benefit of the swamp rabbit as well as man. You've been listening to In Nature. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience in all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at
0: wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn all about mountain biking at the Go Bike in Mountain Bike Workshop on Saturday, June 17th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Brown County State Park. This beginner class will teach you valuable skills and help you get comfortable on the bike. You will end your training with a ride on one of Brown County's renowned mountain bike trails. Register at emajor at dnr.in.gov. The Indiana Forest Alliance
2: is hosting a public hike in Yellowwood State Forest Backcountry to view some of the most biodiverse forests in the state on Saturday, June 17th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Yellowwood Backcountry Access off of Possum
0: Trot Road in Morgantown. Enjoy a summer solstice morning stroll at Spring Mill State Park on Wednesday, June 21st from 9 to 10.30 a.m. Stroll on Trail 4 to bring in the longest day of the year. Meet at the Donaldson Cave parking lot. This is a two-mile rugged hike. A trail care day at Greens
2: Bluff in Owen County is coming up on Saturday, June 24th from 9 a.m. to noon. Hike the Raccoon Woods Trail and help keep the scenic trail in
0: tip-top shape. Take a Garden Insects Friends and Foes class at the Butler Park Community Gardens on Saturday, June 24th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Discover the insects that call your garden home. Find out which ones are friends and or foes. To register, go to bloomington.in.gov parks. Today's feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Herhusky Snyder. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Kate Young and Noel Herhusky Snyder produced today's show. Brandon Blewett was our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. It's exactly
1: 5 You've been listening to the Eco Report.
0: A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB.
1: In Bloomington, Indiana.
0: Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org.
1: Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source.
0: For South Central Indiana.
1: Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear.
0: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas
1: directly to the Eco Report staff.
0: The email address is
1: earth at wfhb.org.
0: That's earth at wfhb.org.